when we come on a retreat like this, I think there are many different stories or imaginings or we could perhaps say fantasies that we might have about what will happen when we come. And um, perhaps understandably and maybe not unreasonably, it's not so uncommon that we come along with a sense of a sort of a hope and a imagination or a sense that somehow we'll engage in this process of meditation and this situation of being on retreat and there will be this kind of very clear and hopefully quite swift linear movement from pain, chaos, confusion and struggle to, to ease, to clarity, to peace, to calm. And it's sort of it's a kind of a narrative that we resonate with and it sounds really attractive, of course, understandably. And yet after a few days on a retreat such as this, we probably realise that that particular fantasy isn't exactly how it works. Um, it may not even be anything like it for most of us. And so we have this opportunity to consider what are we engaging with? What are we giving ourselves to in terms of giving ourselves to this process? What does that mean for us? And I think a useful way we could understand, and there are many that we could appropriately apply, but one that's useful to reflect on is a process of opening. There are cycles and movements and the flow of our journey and our life in which we encounter places where we are being invited to open. And at times when we are able to open, there may be a sense of of ease, of fluidity, of, of sweetness, of uplift. And at times there may be struggle and there may be difficulty and there may be a sense of I'm not quite sure this is what I signed up for that arises for us we sometimes might wonder how we're doing how am I getting you know getting along it's so compelling for us to want to evaluate our practice and there's a story I like to share from um, a retreat that was being taught in, in California many years ago by Jack Cornfield one of the elders and senior teachers of this uh, insight meditation community and in this retreat at one point um, when Jack came into the staff room one of the staff asked him Jack asked him about his friend could you tell me about my friend how, how, how's, how's she doing and Jack said oh yeah, she, yeah, yeah she's doing really well and this person was really happy so I asked about another friend oh yeah yeah they're doing very well also and uh, another staff member um spoke and asked Jack and Jack again, you know, about this other person. Yeah, they're doing very well. And they started to wonder. They said, Jack, what do you mean when you say doing very well? Jack just smiled and he said, oh, they're still here. (laughs) So if you've been wondering how you're doing, there's your answer. And in some ways it's really the only significant answer to that question for us. We're still here. We're still engaging in this process, all of us. And this is a process of, as I said, from one way we can see it as a a journey of opening, of releasing the habits we have and the structures we have that conduce to and create the sense of closeness and the disconnect or the separateness that arises from that. So... Practice gives us this invitation to look and to see what's actually happening. 
we have the opportunity here, as well as cultivating many different and wholesome qualities and the different practices we're engaging in, to begin to see and to transform how we respond to life, how we engage with this that we call being here in all the different ways and shapes and forms that we experience it. And one of the the key things, and we've touched on this a little bit already, um, but to, to really look at and to reflect on, to see life as we know it, as we experience it, it's not always easy for us. It's challenging sometimes, extremely so. And meditation too can at times be extremely challenging to be in the silence, to be with our body, to be with our mind, to be with our companions. I mean, sometimes we love them, of course, but at other times they're really annoying. They make noises and they get in the way. Or they go and walk in the place I wanted to do my walking meditation and they get there before me and they don't realise it's mine. How annoying. People can be like that sometimes. And so... One of the things we get to observe here is how do we respond to when things are not the way we wish them to be? How do we respond when things aren't easy, when they aren't comfortable, when they're not according to our preferences? So one of the primary mechanisms that we notice, that we encounter, is the tendency to want to withdraw from or to push away that which we are not so happy to experience, which we're not yet able to welcome and to open to. And there's a way the mind and the body both contract and tighten that we might start to become familiar with if we practice over time. We start to notice, and uh, again, I think we've spoken about this, the kind of tightness that's there from the, the history and the habitual contraction of trying to resist that which is not easy for us. To experience. And then there's the, the active process of contracting that we might sometimes notice. And the effect of this is it's like an attempt to try and block out what's going on. And we can trace it to the you know the early origins of organic life, which in as far as we know, to the best of our scientific sort of uh, I have to say, guesswork, um, even though I don't mean that to be disrespectful to the good work of science, there's a significant amount of uncertainty in everything. Um, but that, you know, little single-celled organisms floating around in the ocean somehow appeared, it seems. That's the best version of it we've got. Or maybe they appeared in little rock pools on the side of the ocean and took a while before they started floating around in the rather larger body of water. Um, without sort of getting too involved with figuring out how they actually managed to do that, which is kind of remarkable, it has to be said, that they just managed to appear. At some point they were there, it seems, and sometime earlier they just weren't. Um, the basic condition of these little organisms is a little sack full of juice, basically, just a little, little round sort of cell, like a cell, basically, and floating in this kind of fluid medium, encountering, at times substances, chemicals in that medium that, that might be harmful or toxic to it and needing to contract and tighten so as to not absorb them. And this is a basic biological response mechanism. If you're a semi-permeable membrane full of juice 
floating around in a soup that's suddenly full of unpleasant and dangerous things, you don't want to take them in. And so you want to tighten up those little pores and those permeability, sort of that element of permeability around the, um, the membrane so it doesn't get in. Whereas if at some point later you end up amongst something nutritious, nourishing, and maybe, you know, delicious, I don't know if that applies for little single-celled organisms, but it might, um, then you kind of want to relax, you want to open, you want to allow all that stuff in because, and, and make yourself as permeable as possible. And this is a happy condition to be soaking up all that nutrient. Then, of course, you've got to be careful because while you're really wide open and letting all that stuff in, what if some bad stuff comes along? You've got to really quickly shut down and tighten up. So this probably went on for something in the order of millions and millions of years before any of these little organisms sort of got together and formed complicated things like human beings. And this human body is mostly about, is it 10 billion, 100 billion? Quite a lot. More than just a few of those little sacs called cells. And they have this tendency still to contract and tighten and yet at the same time to wish to be able to expand and open and receive and be nourished by the life in which they are floating. So this hardening, this contracting that we can notice is a is a way that we've kind of amplified, solidified and in a certain way institutionalized within ourselves a protective mechanism that has a function in a certain way but that becomes incredibly limiting when it becomes our only way of responding to what might be difficult. To attempt to harden, to block out, to not experience that which is uncomfortable for us. To not have to feel pain. To not have to feel unease. Of course, it's understandable that we might wish for that. We're incredibly sensitive human beings. In fact, all living things are incredibly sensitive. But we know our experience. If we, if we reflect on it, we see we feel things deeply. We're touched. We're impacted. In so many ways. That's, by definition... Living, existing is to be subject to that right from when we begin to be born and to have this incredibly soft, soft, tender skin and then probably even the softest, most sort of finely fibred towel of pure cotton still probably feels really rough against the skin of a baby. And of course, you know, it goes on from there. It's not easy to be sentient, to be alive, to feel, to be, it seems, wired up and connected to the sensitivity. Of course, this is the very same sensitivity through which we can feel the sweetness of, of loving touch from someone who cares, from which we can smell the, the sweet aroma of the rose the fragrance that maybe you've noticed some of the roses we were talking about them with uh, Helen and a friend of ours, Kirsten who was here as a resident teacher and uh, how amazing the roses are sometimes at this time of year and that very same capacity you can smell the sweetness of the rose of course 
when walking around near the septic tank at the other end of the building, smells what that's like sometimes when it's doing what it does. And it's like, hmm, not quite so nice. Of course, when people plant roses near the septic tank, it gets a bit confusing. But um, life is often like that, woven together, these different strands. And this, this process whereby we try and remove ourselves from or disconnect from what is difficult or painful or scary or feels threatening to us. Again, it seems like it makes sense. Like, why wouldn't I do that? Can't I just avoid those things if possible, if at all possible? And yet, what happens when we try and do that is we start to become numb. We start to become desensitized. We can't disconnect from a part of life. We can only just disconnect. And one element of that is that there's a, there's a kind of a numbing that happens when we stop inhabiting our sensitivity. And it's a condition in our world that's becoming increasingly amplified. So that I, d- I don't know if you've noticed it or if you do such activities as listen to movies, but the sound that is played in a movie these days is, I would say, two to three times the volume that it used to be played That when I remember as a kid or a teenager. And it needs to be that loud to get through and have an impact, it seems to me. Because socially and culturally we've gone through a process of desensitisation that continues, because you as you get more desensitised, things need to get louder and stronger. And the volume of a movie is just one thing. But things need to get louder and stronger to impact us. And then if we're trying to manage that impact by blocking it out, we have to amplify or intensify that disconnecting tendency. And so we become numb to life. We lose contact with the, the vitality and the sensitivity. And just continuing what I was saying before, we can't just disconnect from or become numb in relationship to a particular experience that we find difficult or a condition that we wish to avoid. Conditions and experiences are all woven together somewhat inextricably. And whenever we try and, in a way, remove ourselves from one thing, we end up actually withdrawing from everything. And it's a little bit like if we try and push something away. Imagine there was a something, a place that we didn't like on the earth, and we thought, I'll just push that part of the earth away. What would happen? We try and push it away, but actually we get pushed away from the earth because it's so much bigger. And when we, in a way, push away, when we reject, when we try and do that in relationship to a part of our experience in fact we start to lose contact with all of our experience and there's a loss that we feel from that that loss of sensitivity that loss of contact and the the vitality and the nourishment that we draw from our intimacy with life starts to become a scarce a rare and a, a disappearing commodity In attempting to 
separate ourselves from or to remove ourselves from or disconnect ourselves from that which is uncomfortable, scary and painful, we at the same time become disconnected from, even alienated from that which is touching, which is nourishing, which is sweet and beautiful. And what we begin to notice as we practice and engage here in what we're doing, there's a a way that this activity of bringing our attention, of consciously inhabiting our experience, our body, our breath, the movement of our hand or our leg or whatever it might be, it starts to soften that arma. It starts to tenderize and moisturize to consciously inhabit your experience. To do what we're doing is a is a profoundly radical choice to make in the face of a culture that tends to encourage us to stay distant from our experience, distracted from it, not actually intimate with it. And what happens in that as we consciously inhabit our body, our heart, our mind, these momentary and ongoing fluid experiences that are arising for us, there's a, a softening, a lubricating, and we realize that in fact this process of meditation is not one in which we are escaping our experience or getting distant from it or finding some way to manage it at a safe, comfortable distance, which we might have imagined this would be a technology for that. But in fact, in this process of meditation, we're going deeper into the experience of our aliveness, of its vitality, its sensitivity, its tenderness, and its sweetness. And this tends to happen, whether we intend it or wish it or not, if we just keep coming back into contact with our experience. All those movements away into thought, into reactivity, into past, into future, to a lot of to a large extent that's found on or underpinned on a, on a reluctance to inhabit the, the vulnerability and the sensitivity of our aliveness. was uh, teaching a retreat in the Inside Meditation Society in um, Massachusetts some years ago now. And it was summer and I was walking in the woods on the way to the, uh, the pond, which in England we'd probably call a lake, but there was a pond, Gaston Pond. And uh, as I was walking through the woods and quite lush greenery around, I saw on the path in front of me suddenly a snake. And quite a substantial snake, like, like the body, something like this. And it was like I stopped dead still. We don't have snakes in New Zealand. I'm not familiar with them, and we don't have many in England now. I live here now. Um, but here was this large snake on the path, and I was both scared, for sure, 
Man's really interested. Like, wow, look at this creature. And of course, as I was looking at it, I thought, oh, I'd like to get a bit closer, but that's probably a really bad idea. And there was these various thoughts going on in my mind, I remember, about ropes and snakes and confusing the two in the Buddha's teaching. There's a various uh, reflection on the, the problems you get into if you think a snake is a rope and grab it. That's a bad idea. But also, if you think a, a rope is a snake and get scared by it, that's also a bit embarrassing. So there's that kind of there's various thoughts going on. I'm watching and looking. Then I realize it's not moving. So I take a little courage and I go a little closer. A little closer. And I realize it is a snake skin. There's no snake inside anymore. So it was a snake, but it's not quite a snake anymore. And I started reflecting. I was thinking, wow, that must be quite a project, getting out of your skin. And reflecting a little further, I realized, of course, that's what snakes do, as I'm sure you know, most of us will be quite aware. Snakes have this lovely protective sheath on the scaly skin on the outside that protects them. But by the very nature of its protective armourness, it can't grow. It doesn't stretch very far. Because if it did, it would have to be soft and permeable, which wouldn't give it any protection. So every year the snake has to shed its skin. And it must come out of that skin without another hard protective skin around it. Because otherwise that couldn't be any larger than the one it just escaped. And it wouldn't be able to grow. In order to survive, in order to live every year, it has to come out. And it's got to come out something, I don't know, pink and juicy or however it might be that a snake comes out. But it's not going to come out with its protective shell around it. Because that would defeat the object. It would be no bigger. And it needs to grow. If it can't grow, it will die. And so when it comes out of that skin, it must be a bit of a worrying time. It's like it's not a moment when you want a hawk to fly past. And it kind of really spoke to me, and it was very touching just to contemplate what that must be for a snake and how for ourselves as human beings and practitioners here in a retreat like this, we start to recognize that there's a hardness that we've grown, that we've built, we didn't quite even intend to, that starts off as a protection but becomes a prison in which we are bound, in which we are caught or held in such a way that there's not room to move, in which we can't actually grow beyond the limitations of the shapes and the forms that we've constructed and contracted into. And so part of our practice is this process of what we could call releasing ourselves from that imprisonment that involves a, a shedding of a skin, we could say. And that kind of gives some idea of how, oh, it's not just, yeah, let's get out of prison, that'll be fun. If we had to get out of prison but we're leaving our skin behind, we'd realise this is, this is going to be tricky. This isn't going to be easy. Of course, not literal skin in this case. But sometimes when we allow ourselves to get close to our experience, we feel that there's a tenderness, there's a sensitivity. And 
And we don't easily allow ourselves to experience that. When we come into contact with that which is tender, with that which may feel raw or painful, much more easily we tend to kind of look for something or someone to blame. To blame situations, to blame other people, or to blame ourselves. Because it's not supposed to be like this. It's not supposed to hurt. It's not supposed to be scary. So we tell ourselves. So we imagine, it seems. And interestingly, that, that very process of when we encounter tenderness or, or, or something that might feel raw or painful or vulnerable, that kind of looking for something or someone to blame is a way in which we kind of lean back into the hardening. We kind of try and somehow move away from that position or that, that dimension of the experience. And so, again, we're asked, and we're invited, and we're called to say, can we have the courage to, to let ourselves experience what's here and what comes? To learn to be in our body. To really be here. When we're distant from it, it can seem threatening, scary, painful in so many ways. When we learn to inhabit it fully, it becomes a very sweet and loving abiding. And yet that really requires us to be willing to include the fullness of its experience, which includes that which is uncomfortable. Not just the body, of course, the heart the life that we live here. And that which is uncomfortable, to consider our view of it, because it's very easy to imagine that really we could do very well without any of that, to live our life without discomfort. And yet, interestingly, that sense of unease or discomfort, that's a signal to us saying something needs attention here. Something needs attention here. We tend to want to not have to have the experience, but in fact it serves us. We don't have to like it, but we need to respect the tenderness of our heart, of our body, of our sensitive mind. In my early years of practice, I spent some time in, uh, in India and I was uh, at one point uh, living with my grandmother who is Bengali, so I'm quarter Indian and I was living in Calcutta um, while also uh, exploring meditation practice. I, I had the opportunity to work with um, a, uh, a clinic that was helping some of the, uh, a sort of a, a medical clinic that was giving free medical care to the very poor and sometimes, uh, you know, people living in sometimes desperate circumstances in, 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 the, in the poor areas of Calcutta. And uh, I was completely unequipped and unskilled for such work, so I was really just a sort of a, a helper to the medically skilled people who were doing the real work. Um, but one of the things I learned while I was there that, that has stayed with me and I often reflect on 
was we were, we were among other things, there were people with leprosy who were being treated. And when we hear leprosy, we tend to think, ooh, scary, <coughs> yuck. You know, this kind of thing, we've got a bit of a phobia about it. At least I did, and many, I think, in the West, and people maybe who have or haven't contacted, had contact with it might feel a bit sort of, it's got this very negative association. And we think of it as something that kind of makes bits of your body fall off. At least I did. And actually, leprosy is nothing like that. That's not what leprosy is. It's really interesting. All the sort of the, the fear and the, and the culture about it. Leprosy, I found out from one of the medical people there, kills the nerve tissue. So you can't feel pain. It doesn't actually cause bits of your body to fall off. But what happens amongst poor people who are living in situations where it's, they either have not the education or the facility to be able to keep clean, if they cut themselves or burn themselves or injure themselves, they don't feel it. It easily gets infected and it's the infection that they don't notice until, because it doesn't hurt, until actually there's the loss of the tissue. And it was so striking and humbling to me to realise that in fact for these people experiencing leprosy the thing that would make the most difference to their life would be able to feel pain the thing that would be the most useful thing for them would be to be able to feel pain and because they couldn't they were unable to protect themselves and so that sense of when we experience that which is difficult. Sometimes, of course, we do need to make a response to protect ourselves. But the first thing we need to do is pay attention here. And pain's really good at getting us to do that. That's, it's, it's like it's designed to get us to pay attention. But mostly because it's unpleasant, we don't want to. We don't want to have to feel that which hurts. If we can find, most of us, me included, any way around it, we will. But if we don't feel it, we're at risk of experiencing something like what happens for the people suffering from leprosy. We withdraw from the area, we stop feeling it, and then in a way we lose that part of our experience, of our life, because we no longer inhabit it. So to pay attention here if the body is sore. Sometimes we might need to move. Sometimes we might stay with that experience. Likewise when the heart may be feeling tender. Sometimes we need to be close with those experiences. Sometimes we need to give them space. But we do need to turn towards them and not away. And see what's needed here. What's possible here. So much of the response that comes is born of fear. The tendency to push away or to pull away from an experience because we're afraid of what it will mean if it continues or becomes worse. And yet, interestingly, again and again, in engaging with our experience, and I've had this experience myself many times and spoken to so many people who, in finding the courage and the willingness to turn towards the pain, and to begin to explore it and allow it to be felt that somehow in that, although the pain may continue to be painful, the distress and the fear drains out of it. 
So much of what we're afraid of is not the experience itself. It's the ideas that arise in our mind about what will happen if it continues or it gets worse. And fear inevitably is a projection into the future of our ideas based on things that have happened in the past. And things that have happened in the past that we have survived. Because if we didn't survive them, we wouldn't be here to be afraid of what it might be like if it happened again. It might have been hard, it might have been painful, not denying that. But we survived it, we wouldn't be here. And yet somehow in the projecting of the future, the fear has the sense that somehow I won't survive that. But it's only based on the difficulty of experiences which we survived in the past. That's the only basis we have to project something into the future, to be afraid of. Does that make sense? Do you see how that works? Everything we think about thinking forwards is somehow an extension, an extrapolation, an amalgamation or a sort of a some kind of construction out of past experiences. And so we're actually fearing something that isn't real in that way. And inevitably is not as threatening to us as we might have imagined. And we might notice and we might ask ourselves how much of our life has been lived in order to avoid what we fear? How much of our world spends its time and its energy and its resources attempting to avoid what is fearful? Mark Twain once observed, he said, you know, Almost all of the worst experiences of my life never actually happened. The, the sense of the fear of what might happen is so often much worse than the actuality. When it happens, even if it's really a difficult thing that's happened, we can start to deal with it. And we do. We've either survived it, in which case life goes on, or we haven't, in which case, in a certain way, the problem's over. Really, it's so. And yet that sense of fear where we're lost in it, in a story about the future, that takes us out of contact with where we are. And practice calls us to turn back to the experience that's happening in the present moment. When fear arises and says, oh, what's going on here? What's happening here? So often, of course, we move very quickly from that fear of that which is difficult in the present, imagined that might be difficult in the future, or remembered as difficult in the past, with some sense of grievance, of grudge, of somehow it's not supposed to be like this. And yet... If we actually feel into that, we see there's a kind of a, a rejecting of the truth of our experience because it's not about whether it should or shouldn't be this way. If it's like this, it's just like this. And often, underneath that kind of pushing away and that hardening, that judging, that blaming, that rejecting that sometimes happens, if we actually let ourselves feel under that, under the fear, under the anger, there's often sorrow and grief 
for the losses, for the difficulties, for the struggles of life that we have encountered. And to see that this is part of life for all of us. It feels so tender and so personal what happens in our journey, in our experience. And for each of us, of course, the story is unique, it's particular. And yet, the nature of what that is for us is universal. We all share <coughs> in what it means to experience fear or loneliness, isolation or shame. To feel stress, sorrow, frustration, anxiety, rage, confusion, sadness. All of this we encounter as human beings. And the Buddha spoke about it, you know, many times. And he talked about the body, the condition of this human body, experiencing birth, aging, sickness and death. All bodies go through this. Having been born, aging happens. No matter how much we spend on expensive products, no matter how much we eat the right things and exercise and, sorry, do yoga and meditation as well, body ages. It does. And sickness. It's the usual translation of sickness and this this. Birth, aging, sickness, death. We all know, well, we kind of know about death, don't we? We don't really know. But sickness, actually, I, I used to wonder about, why is it in that order? The Buddha's got a remarkable mind. If you read, or you study his teaching, it's sort of like everything's very methodical. And I thought, sickness. Sickness always happens. I, I got sick a long time before I started aging. When I was a kid, I wasn't aging. I was, you know, seven. I remember being quite sick. I had to go to hospital. Um, and... So why would you put it there? And then I saw another translation, which is much better. It's, you try this one, birth, ageing, decay, death. Ah, yeah, we get that, don't we? Sickness isn't, in this phrase, getting unwell and then getting better. It's the kind of getting unwell that happens from which you don't get better. But you're not actually quite finished with this business of being alive yet. You know, decay. Tooth decay is one thing. But actually decay, it's like, oh gosh. Yeah, it's like, as one of my teachers would say, the system runs down. It doesn't run up. Well, maybe for 15 to 20 years, if we're lucky, it runs up. And then it starts running down. Slowly to begin with, and then more quickly. And that's this body. And we all have one. We all experience this. And death too. Not such an easy thing, it would seem. Although we may have some sense of okayness with that. We can probably, most of us, relate to, I think it was Woody Allen who said, you know, well, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> it's like scary, out of control, probably quite uncomfortable, possibly quite embarrassing, as the body lets go of its functionality. And the Buddha spoke about the human experience of our hearts, these sensitive, tender things. Things, not a thing. Sense of tenderness of our being. He talked about sorrow, pain, grief, lamentation, and despair. You think, oh, yeah, ouch. We've probably known something of that, of sorrow, of pain, of grief, of lamentation and despair. Those times where we try and we hope until we can no longer hope that things won't be the way they've turned out. And the Buddha also spoke about our minds, how it is for us in our mind when we're associated with something we don't like. 
when we're separated from what we do know or what we love and what it's like for us when we don't get what we want it's kind of like oh we don't like that I don't like that I don't know if you like that and it's kind of like well that would make an interesting advertisement for a meditation course wouldn't it come along birth, ageing decay and death sorrow, pain, grief lamentation, despair association with the unliked separation from the loved not getting what you want Sounds accurate, but you know we probably wouldn't come along if that was the subtext of the meditation retreat. This is what you get, and of course that's not all of it, but that's part of it. That's part of what it means to be alive for us all. And we might think, and I think, you know, we might accept, sure, okay, yeah, the body goes through this, but surely I don't have to experience sorrow, pain, grief, lamentation, and despair. Surely there's a way around that. If I just got my life right, if all the things worked out the way they were supposed to. But that's not so. And I illustrate this in a way which for me makes it very clear, and maybe for you also. There's no way around that condition, because if in this life you love something or someone, at some point you'll be parted or separated from that personal thing. This is how life is. At some point, through intentional choice, through accident, through death or random circumstance, you'll be separated from that person or thing that you love. And that will be painful. That will be hard. There will be grief. There will be sorrow. There will be that process whereby we have to come to terms with it when we don't want to. That may include lamentation and despair. And if you don't love something in this life or someone, that will be painful. That will be grievous. That will be a desperately uncomfortable condition for a human heart. Do you recognise that? I've not seen a third option there. Do you recognise that? If you love, you will at some point be separated from what you love. That won't be easy. If you don't love... That won't be easy. So what does that say to us? Oh. The fact that this is uncomfortable, painful, tender, scary at times, it's not because you're doing something wrong. It's not because you've messed up or your parents messed up or your people in your life have messed up. It's because this is the nature of life that we have this capacity to connect and love and be close to and care about deeply that which is beautiful and precious. And that very capacity in itself has within it the seeds of also how it will be for us and the loss of or the absence of that which we care about and we love. And so... We're asked to open to this, to honour this, to turn towards this. And at times turn towards this body, this heart, to feel the tender, the difficult. Where we might notice it in the body, to see, can I actually be close with this? Can I give it space? Can I give it care? There's a real kindness in just being willing to experience what is here. We don't have to like it. 
but to understand for ourselves, to begin to explore and to see that the connection we long for, the deep entry into our life, comes as importantly through that which is not easy for us as through that into which we quite naturally wish to relax because it is delightful or uplifting. To be able to connect with those places that are not easy for us because we understand that it's the disconnecting, it's the loss of connection that in fact is the deeper suffering, is the deeper pain of our heart and our life, we could say. And then when we can open to it, the fear of becoming stuck in it that we have that leads us to say, I don't want to feel it, I don't want to open to it, I'll become stuck there, it'll go on forever. We see that this is not true. When we give the experience space and bring care to it, although we can't determine the time frame, and sometimes it takes time, giving that space and offering that care allows the fluidity and the, the moistness of our life to express itself. Wendell Berry speaks of this in one of his poems. He writes, I go among trees and sit still. What I am afraid of comes and I sit in its sight. My tasks lie around me like cattle. I've misremembered the poem. I'll start again. I go among trees and sit still. All my stirring becomes quiet. My tasks around me in their place like cattle. Then what I am afraid of comes. I sit for a while in its sight. And what I am afraid of, in it leaves it. And the fear of it leaves me. It sings, and I hear its song. And for me, it speaks very clearly of that process of what happens for us here when we allow ourselves to sit still and to be in the presence of that which comes when we're not so busy with our usual tasks and our urgent activities. And that when we can stay present with that which is challenging to us, the movement, the fluidity that is revealed as things open up, we actually come into relationship with what is here. It sings and we hear its song. It's like there's a communication that happens at a deeper level when we're willing, when we have the courage. And when we've 
establish the foundations for being able to. It takes time to stay with such difficult things. We see that the experience is fluid. All experience is fluid. And it only gets stuck when we resist and because we resist. But our nature, the nature of this heart, mind, body, life is permeable. And in fact, what comes in passes through. When we resist it, we don't actually stop it getting in because it's already in. We simply stop it getting out. And so the, the process of trying to defend ourselves by hardening, we actually imprison exactly that which we're trying to avoid within the structure of our resistance. We don't imprison it, we don't keep it out. We actually, it's inside, we could say. And to open to our life, to open to our experience, this is a profound kindness to ourselves, to inhabit the experience of our life unconditionally. This open heart that is permeable, that is connected, allows life to pass through. And to be wakeful, to be present, to be mindful and sensitive as life passes through. That which is tender, that which is sweet, and equally that which is just the ordinary stuff of the day. All of this, as it moves, we perhaps start to sense the fluidity of this life. And the way that we imagine ourselves as somehow being subject to experience, separate from it and having it somehow happen to me, that this isn't how it is. This isn't actually what's going on. That the experience, that the life is unfolding, revealing itself, in a way we could say it's pouring through this space of the present moment, of this sensitive permeability, this openness. Life pours through it. And in that, we can't really separate out the location in which it's pouring through from what it is that's pouring through. It's not like it's somehow happening to us or happening apart from us. It's just what's happening. The experience is not separate from and does not separate us from the wholeness of life. And this wholeness has an immediacy, a presence, a wakefulness to it that is vast and tender. And what we may come to know is more true than the stories of our self and our struggles and our triumphs equally. That these are somehow not so solid anymore. That what we truly are is not bound to or defined by what it is that moves through. And yet nor is it separate from all of that which moves. And to know this, to know this, even if we can't speak it, but to know this, its expression is a a vast openness of heart and a, and a deep tender caring for life for all beings, for ourselves for this body, for all bodies for the very body of life 
And it's this that our practice invites us to awaken to, to embody. So let's sit quietly for a few moments together. So may we all, in our practice here together, and in our lives, may we find the courage to turn towards that which is not easy. To allow our hearts to become tender and open. To receive and hold the fullness of life, of which we are a part and an expression. for our own welfare and for the welfare and the well-being of all that lives. So thank you for your presence here and your practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.